My name is Dr. Naseem Salahuddin, and I'm the head of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Indus Hospital Health Network in Karachi, Pakistan. My work with rabies goes back to many, many years when I saw my first case of death from rabies, and that really was so touching that in my mind, I said, we must know how to prevent it for every child, mostly their children, but adults and children. And so I instituted the rabies prevention program in my hospital, and I'm trying to disseminate this information as far and wide as I can. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it, especially we have a large time difference between us. So I'd like to just get started by talking a little bit about the background to your research study and make sure that our audience understands the proposed new schedule that you studied for rabies prophylaxis and what the historical protocol was that you had previously been using. Okay. The reason we did this study was, number one, we are always faced with frequent short supplies of cell culture vaccines and rabies immune globulin. There is very poor knowledge, attitudes, and practices amongst doctors and paramedics There's poor understanding of use of cell culture vaccines and immune globulins. And uh, everywhere, generally, it is assumed that post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, is considered to be unaffordable. So I set off on this study to show that it really is affordable. And it has to be understood by physicians who are practicing in emergency rooms, particularly in the lower middle income countries. I want to give you just a brief history of the vaccine, rabies vaccines, mm-hmm. uh, and the regimen history. To go back, say, in the 20th century, earlier 20th century, a person by the name of David Semple, he, you know, there was a lot of rabies there, untreated, everybody died, but Semple discovered a way of preventing rabies in those suspected with bite from a rabid animal. Mm-hmm. And he started what is called the nerve tissue vaccine. Essentially, what he did was to produce the vaccine on nerve tissue among suckling mice and later on in sheep brain. Uh, and this was a tedious process. You know, it had to go through various passages. And ultimately, when it was ready and purified as best as he could, it had to be injected into the abdominal wall subcutaneously. Mm. And the methodology was terribly tedious. You had to come every day to be injected with five mLs of the vaccine into the abdominal wall for 14 consecutive days. Okay. Yeah, that was very troublesome. There were a lot of side effects. And if the vaccine was not entirely purified, then people would even get symptoms of rabies encephalitis, mimicking rabies encephalitis. So this went on because this was the only thing available around the world and it kept getting used. However, somewhere in the 1990s, the companies, uh, pharmaceuticals were working hard at it and produced the cell culture vaccine. And that really was a remarkable achievement 
because it changed the entire scenario of rabies prevention. So in 1992, WHO instituted what is called the Zagreb Regimen, in which there were three visits and the daily the schedule was on day zero, you got two intramuscular injections, one into each deltoid. Mm. Again, on one intramuscular injection on day seven and one in day, on day 21. So there were four vials used intramuscularly. And this seemed reasonably successful. Then in 2009, another regimen was instituted by the American College of Immunization Practices. And this was called the SN regimen. And here one was given single doses on day 0, 3, 7, 14, and 28, day 28. So this was spread out over one month. And one whole vial of the vaccine was given into the deltoid muscle. And four to five vials were used. And that was successful. And this is really what is still practiced. However, the 28th day is now being deleted. And only the 0, 3, 7, and 14 intramuscular regimens are now in use in countries where there is there are not very many cases of dog bites or bat bites or whatever. However, it was found using four whole vials for a single person with a dog bite uh, happening in high burden countries and lower middle income countries was just not practical. I mean, if you were going to use four vials for, per person and the cost of it per vial was say 10 or $15. And as in my hospital, every single day, we see 20 to 50 new dog bites. And in the city of Karachi, where there are other hospitals, they too report more than 50 new dog bites a day. So what I'm saying is that if you had 200 bites per day in just one city, and each person had to get four vials, I mean, this would be totally out of reach, even for 10 patients in a day. Obviously, it's very expensive. Now, what happened was that in 1994, the Thai Red Cross in Bangkok at their WHO Collaborating Center for Rabies, they experimented and found that if you give the same vaccine, low dose intradermal, meaning just below the skin, intradermal, not into the skin, but not under the skin, and according to a defined regimen, it was as effective as giving the same vaccine intramuscular. Now, the advantage here was that you were using one vial for several patients. Maybe if, if you had the one ML vaccine available and the reconstituted vaccine was of one ML, you could treat five patients with that one vial. And obviously that was so economical and equally effective. And so you could share one vial between five people and still get the same result as you would giving four whole vials to one single person. I mean, the mathematics, the arithmetic of it is very obvious. So you would save something like 60% of the cost of giving vaccine to a group of people. 
Okay, as time went on, it was found in 2006 that if you remove the day 90 vial vaccine, meaning the patient would have to, in the previous one in 1984, the patient had to come back five different times up to three months, the last dose being on day 90. But it was found then that if you, they did not come for day 90, they came only on day 0, 3, 7, and 28, the result would be as good as giving it for five-visit regimen. So that was very economical. And then in 2019, this was again further discussed in the WHO and found that most patients who did not come back even on day 28, and they came only on day 037, meaning in one week, and received the same vaccine intradermally on the deltoid, had the same results as they did in the previous TRC ID regimen back in 1984 and 2006. And so in 2018, WHO published its position paper saying that from now on, the, this is called the IPC regimen, IPC one-week regimen from Institute Pasteur in Cambodia. The one-week regimen, which we have adopted over three days on day 0, 3, and 7, and you use up only 0.6 ml of a vial. So it's quite obvious that if you use this kind of a regimen, more the, the vaccine could be shared with more people. So I think the, the, this led me, I was part of the WHO consulting group and of the, of the STAG group. And when I came back to Pakistan, I realized that this would be even better than using the previous regimens. Now, this is very economical and useful and suggestive for LMICs where there is a high footfall of dog bite victims in the emergency room. As I said earlier, we have more than 50 new dog bites come into our clinic on any given day, 30, 40, 50, even 60. And sometimes a rabid animal or a presumed rabid animal would bite more than three, four, five, ten 10 people. I mean, there'd be an outbreak. So this was of great concern. And so I thought in my mind that if I use the one week, three dose regimen, it, one could share the vaccine with more dog bite victims. And you know that would be more economical for the hospital because we do not charge our patients. Ours is a hospital which provides free medical care to anybody who walks in. And rabies prevention is one of them. That's really fascinating to hear about the evolution of the protocol, especially not having been aware personally that it used to be advised to use such a extended protocol of administering that vaccine and immunoglobulin regimen. And I think that it makes so much sense that you've tried to adopt this much more cost-effective method. I'm very curious to know about what you've seen in your practice having changed over from the old way of doing things to the new way and just anecdotally what that has looked like. So after this IPC regimen was approved by WHO, several other institutions, researchers also worked on it and did the one-week intradermal dose-pairing regimen for rabies, PEP, and these were published in good journals. Now, what I did then was 
again to work on this aspect, on this assumption that this would be cost effective. So how would I prove it? What I did was I did a retrospective cohort study, but this was retrospective of the vaccine that we had, with the number of patients and the, the number of vaccine virus and the cost of 2017, which was before the position paper, and compared it prospectively with patients who now came in after 2018. And what we found was in 2017, nearly 5,000 patients who came in in 2017 that we looked at. Now, we didn't include all, but only those whose demographics matched those we saw in 2018. And by that, I mean that <clears throat> these were people who were came to us in groups bitten by the same dog, meaning they were in outbreaks. So what we defined as outbreaks was if a single dog bit more than five people, then that animal was probably rabid. So we included such victims in 2017 and similar cohort in 2018. So in 2017, we treated about 5,000 people as compared to 2018, where there were about also about 5,400. The male-female difference was more or less the same, and the categories were also similar. And Comparing the 2017 number of vials with 2018 number of vials, we saved 140 vials by using the one-week prep. Let me be just clear. In 20, before 2018, we used to use the four dose over 0, 3, 7, and 28, meaning the patient had to come back in day 28 to get the fourth dose. But in 2018, we had them come only on day zero, three, and seven. So we were essentially saving the patient from coming back on day 28 and saving the 0.2 mLs of vaccine. Doesn't sound very big, but when you calculate for the number of patients that we were seeing between 2017 and 18, we saved 140 vials of rabies vaccine, which is very precious. And at that time, the cost of the vaccine was around $6. But now, of course, the rates have gone much, much higher. And we saved nearly $800 just with the vaccine alone. So $800 was significant for just talking about 5,000 patients. But when you project it to oh, about 12,000 patients in a year, it really amounts to quite a bit. Another thing that happened with the position paper change was that instead, see, previous in category three or deep wounds, you also have to give the rabies immunoglobulin into the wound, and the remaining you inject into the muscle, into a distant muscle. But following the 2018 position paper, we realized that the injected rig into a distant muscle did not really have any effect on the virus in the wound itself. So why waste uh, the rig by giving it into the muscle? So it was then decided that you just inject the rig as much as anatomically possible into the wound and save the rest for the next patient. So that made a lot of sense. This is what exactly what we did after 2018. And by giving rig only into the wound, we saved another uh, 436 vials of rig, 
And overall, when you combined the the savings of the vaccine with the savings of the rig, we saved over 4,000 US dollars. And, uh, but this is only talking about a limited number of patients. If we project it now into the larger number of patients that we see every day, the saving is far, far more than what it was in previous years. Secondly, it was not just the cost saving, and of course it is as effective to give this regimen as it was in the longer regimens, but then there were other advantages as well. Not only did the one-week, two-site ID regimen save the vaccine and the cost with the patient safety, but it deleted the day 28 dose, which saved the patient from anxiety, from returning on one month later, the cost of travel, the cost of accommodation, and loss of daily wages, and maybe a small benefit to the hospital that it frees this space in the center's waiting area. So all these factors, I think this was the conclusion from my study, and this was well accepted and published in the WHO Bulletin. And I hope it is having some effect in other LMICs, which are now convinced that a low-dose, one-week regimen is cost-effective and has all these advantages. Now, in the developed countries, of course, you don't have as many dog bite or bat bite or any rabbit-prone bites in the emergency room. So it is not feasible for them to use the intradermal route because then the rest of the vaccine, if you gave the intradermal low dose, the rest of the vaccine would be wasted. So why do that? Instead, you go on the SN regimen, which is injecting a full vial into the deltoid on day zero, three, seven, and 14. So that is, you know, in a private sec setup or in a developed country where you don't have that many cases in a single day or in a single week. Thank you so much for what you shared so far. You really answered the questions that I had about the feasibility and effectiveness of your project. And I also was just curious about the fact that you, as a part of your described protocol in the paper mentioned that you gave residual amounts of the vaccine to hospital staff members as a pre-exposure prophylaxis as well? You don't want to waste the vaccine, so we would give it to our hospital personnel to pre-exposure prophylaxis. However, it's kind of unusual for us to have any excess vaccine because we have so many patients who come in for their follow-ups, so the vaccine, we never really have any left over vaccine. So it's, but, but if we did, if we do ever, then we give it to those who are injecting the vaccine or to any other emergency room worker who might request it, or if he lives in a rabies prone area, then we would give it to them. But it's very unusual for us to have any excess vaccine left over from the, the sharing of the vial. I understand you also took a different approach based on the category of the exposure, category one being the least concerning exposure, and from my understanding, not really even reflecting any penetrating injury. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so WHO has given us a wound categorization formula. Category one is actually a non-exposure 
And that means that if the skin is unbroken or an animal has just licked an intact skin or somebody has touched an animal, you know, people get afraid, frightened of a dog that has brushed past them. And they might come to us with some anxiety or they've seen somebody else or their neighbor bitten by a dog and they were around there. So we just reassure them and that's it. So that's really a non-exposure. It's a non-issue. And we rarely have such patients coming to us for just for a category one. However, category two is that when the uncovered skin is nibbled or a minor scratch or abrasions without bleeding, which means it's a very minor exposure. However, we have to give them extensive questioning about whose dog it was, whether it's a normal, healthy looking dog, whether it was vaccinated, the behavior of the animal, whether it can be observed and so on. And yet, if this person feels that this animal may have some rabies, may have had some rabies prone exposure, then we call it a category two bite. And in that case, it's considered as a moderate risk. And we give only the vaccine, whether it's the intramuscular regimen or the intradermal regimen. It depends upon where you are. As I said, in developed countries, one would give only the intramuscular regimen and where we are would be the intradermal. Now, category three is a severe or a deep wound which may be single, there may be multiple transdermal bites or scratches, or even the mucous membrane may be contaminated with saliva, such as in the eye or in the mouth. And now that is considered a very high risk exposure. And that person should be not only vaccinated, but the wounds should be infiltrated with rabies immune globulin according to a certain calculation or a weight-based calculation. And as I said earlier, a rig should be infiltrated only into the wound. And if there are multiple wounds, every single wound should be infiltrated with rig. That gives the immediate protection, whereas the vaccination gives them a protection with antibodies which develop slowly and they reach the protective level on day 14. So prior to day 14, they must have rig to protect them for the first 14 days. So it is essential for us to categorize the wound and decide whether they should be vaccinate only or vaccinate plus rig infiltration. Thank you for that explanation. I was wondering if there were any findings that surprised you as you were conducting this study or what you thought that the most interesting outcome was. No, I think we went pretty much according to schedule and we followed up all these patients for up to six months. Generally, the incubation period is up to six weeks, but we follow these patients for six months by telephone calls. We would say, you know, is everything okay? They're alive and well? Okay. And every single person was alive and well at the end of six months. Obviously, we're talking about the 2018 recommendation. And we were very pleased at this. Only one patient, unfortunately, died because this was a six-year-old child and we were really heartbroken about it. We did the best we could, gave the vaccination, the rig, and we came on schedule. But the wound was very close to the eyelid. And it was so close to the brain that the incubation period was just within five days and the child died after that. This was not included in the 
study, but this was something we found much later. No, I think we were pretty satisfied with the trial and we continued to use the same regimen. No, there were no real surprises. We were just very pleased about it, that we were saving so much money. It was cost effective and it had all the advantages of a short intradermal regimen. And so we shared the vaccine vial with other patients. We could treat more patients. Honestly, the argument for the decreased use of the resources as well as the cost effectiveness is so compelling. It just made me wonder why would this only be used in low and middle income countries and not everywhere? No, I think, you see, the vial comes, is preformed, lyophilized vial, and when you reconstitute, it is either 0.5 ml or or 1.0 ml. And if in a place where there are not enough patients within eight hours, you have to have at least five patients in front of you within eight hours so that you can share the vial. But if there is nobody else to share the vial, are you going to throw away the rest of the vaccine? No, you don't do that. You just inject the entire vial into that person and have him or her come back on subsequent days to complete the entire course. So it's a matter of economizing only in in countries or in high burden clinics where you have a minimum of five patients per day. Now we have not five patients per day, we have 50 patients per day in whom we have to use the vaccine. So it's just not cost effective in a place where you don't have enough patients in front of you. It's cost effective only when you have many patients, when there's high footfall. I can see the logic there. I'm just wondering because here in my country, the CDC recommends that rabies prophylaxis be administered in a regimen that includes a seven-day dose as well as a 14-day dose. And it seems to me that one could argue based on your results and the other references that you shared that we don't actually need that last 14-day visit. That's right. That's right. I think in subsequent years, there might be another position paper that it, the IM regimen could be just as effective. Uh, the three-day regimen would be just as effective as the 14-day, but we really have not uh, had that approval from WHO as yet. I'm not sure why, but I, you know, if the intradermal is effective over one week, then certainly the IM regimen should be as effective also over one week. So there's really no good rationale for that being, except that the pharmaceutical company that those that market the vaccine have not really worked out that a reduced dose or a reduced regimen would be equally effective. So I'm not sure what that explanation would be from them. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, but I'm always curious about ways that we can conserve resources in any setting, especially given the effects that decreased use of resources can have on reducing our carbon footprint in these times of climate change. In any case, I'm wondering also just if there's anything else that you'd like to share with us about your work or thoughts about the future next steps as well for this area of research. 
Yes, what we are doing presently is we are consolidating our regimen program, not only in my hospital, but I am holding three-day hands-on workshops for institutions where this knowledge is not yet taken hold, where others are using either the four-day or the even the one-month regimen. They're still not converted to using this one-week regimen. So I'm trying to promote this by holding three-day workshops in which day one, we give a whole theoretical background of rabies and the evolution of the vaccine regimens and so on for half the day. And then the remaining part of the day and the second day and the third day, we take them into the clinic and have the healthcare workers actually interview the patient. You know, there are a lot of questions to be asked about whose dog it was, where it was, was it a provoked bite, was it an unprovoked bite, and what category of the bite, and so on and on. And then when we let them interview, let them examine and categorize the wound, whether it was a category two or three, and decide how to give the vaccine, how to draw it up in a vial, how to give it intradermal on both deltoids. And if it's a category three wound, to calculate the dose of the rig and then inject it into each and every wound. And then they are taught how to counsel the patient on the follow-ups and write the notes, write the data, everything. So we are doing this regularly to different institutions and we plan to spread this information and the working of it throughout the province and hopefully later on into other cities and other provinces in the country. So although it is not a research, but it has to catch on so that more people are treated. You know, the false belief over here is that treating dog bites is very expensive. And if a patient lands in one hospital, they say, oh, no, no, we don't have the vaccine. It's too expensive, etc. Just go off to the Indus hospital or to another hospital where they have the means for it. But this is not fair to the patient. So what I'm doing is to spread this information and for them to actually learn the know-how of this whole process of PEP. And before you give the PEP, I must mention that it is as important to wash the wound as it is to give the vaccine and the rig. Perhaps I did not make it clear earlier on, but scrubbing the wound thoroughly for 15 minutes before you even touch the patient or ask any questions is essential. They must wash the wound with soap and water, scrub the wound thoroughly, every single wound thoroughly, until no saliva or dirt is present in the wounds. So what I'm doing essentially now is teaching people how to do correct PEP in their own institutions. And hopefully we'll be able to save more lives. I really think this is fantastic work, and I think it is clearly making a huge impact, not only for the system, but also, most importantly, for the patients. And I am grateful that you're doing it and that you are sharing it with us. Thank you.